quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Having a structure to your day is really, really important. And then a little bit every day on your tasks. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Bruce Willett. Bruce is joining us from Carefree, Arizona. He was a previous guest on the best ever podcast. So if you Google Joe Fairless and Bruce Willett, his episodes will pop up. Bruce, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? Hey, Ash, thanks a lot for having me on. I'm doing fantastic and improving. Uh, it's our pleasure to have you. Bruce is the founder and CEO of Bakerson, which buys and holds multifamily properties in Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Bruce's portfolio consists of being a GP on over 100 units. Bruce, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Uh, it should be over a thousand units, not over a hundred, but that's okay. That's a, um, a great accomplishment. <laughs> I actually started out in single family back in 2002, chasing tax lien foreclosures, then got into buy, fix, and sell in 2003, and then got introduced to wholesaling and wholesaled a ton of properties across Phoenix, over 2,000 houses that we flipped. And we would take them down. Average hold time was 52 days. Average fee was 5,800 bucks average flips. So just small flips and just high volume. And then I uh, got into flipping, doing the same thing with multifamily. And we watched what people are doing. Like, man, there's a lot of money to be made if we take these down. So we formed some partnerships and took down some properties in Phoenix and Glendale. And then after I did a half a dozen in Phoenix, I said, well, the market's peaked here. So let's go to Tucson. And the market had more than doubled since I thought it peaked. So I haven't been so clear on where the prices are going. But who knew Phoenix would do what Phoenix is doing? It's insane. So then we started buying in Tucson, did 11 projects down there. Now we have one in Sierra Vista, Albuquerque, and Fort Worth, Texas. So everywhere you go, you just leave a path of destruction. And when I mean destruction, I mean fully priced properties. Yeah, we get in. We've been able to find the really, really good deals. The property we have in Sierra Vista is $38 a square foot we purchased it at. The one in uh, Albuquerque we bought for under 42000 a door. We just closed in January. And then the one in Fort Worth is 90000 a unit. So the price points we're seeing are not typical, and it's a lot of work to find those deals. But we're particular. We buy cash flow. We don't buy appreciation. We accept appreciation, but that's not what we're buying. We're buying in appreciating markets, but we're focusing on cash flow purchases now. And Bruce, you mentioned you're buying hold. Do you not sell properties? We have in the past. And that's one of the things that I find out that we're operators first and we became syndicators as a way to fund our business. And the challenge that I find is, and in fact, I, I've told this, some of the investors I speak with is why do you consistently put the sponsor out of work? And to me, even by tax definition, over 12 months is a passive investment, but I think 18 to 24 months is still a flip as far as real estate goes, that real estate is a long game. And the reason I'm very passionate about that now is my mentor has 53 years experience in multifamily investing, and that's how old I am. So I figured he's been through many, many cycles. And he says that the way he buys and sells is much different than syndicators, where syndicators are maximizing the investor's investment during a certain time period. But at some point, the ride's going to stop. And are we prepared to go when the ride stops and the huge increase we've seen in values stops? Are we prepared? And what a great question. So what does that look like? When the ride stops and what factors 
would contribute to that ride stopping? Well, there's some hints of it right now, and we got a couple of years left in this run, I believe. But so to get in and out in 18 to 24 months probably is safe. It seems like we're still a lot of good fundamentals in place that have that. But what we're seeing now is we're seeing uncertainty in the interest rates. So the interest rates are going up. There's so much money in the streets. We're actually seeing for operators, uh, the equity cost is coming down a little bit. It was 20, 25% expectations, then it dropped down to 18 or 15, 18. Now there's a, a number of people that are getting 12 to 15. Some even get around 10% equity. And if you get preferred equity, you can get even less than that, get the prep equity in and then bring in common equity on top in your capital stack. But we're seeing the cost of equity coming down. So with the rising rates and the cost of equity going down, plus rents are going up. So with rents going up, we're going to continue to see a push for increased prices. But at some point, the rates are going to continue to go up. We're going to see where rents won't meet projections. People are going to overpromise. And one thing, Ash, that I'm seeing on the people that are putting out their performance, I do not see an increase in expenses that's meeting inflation. And I think that will bite operators. They're going to take some arrows in the assets. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I'm going to use that. I love that line. So I see a lot of that as well, where performance are basically expecting flawless execution. And if there's any hiccups, the numbers don't work. So I've also seen where exit cap rates are lower than entrance cap rates, which doesn't make sense in a rising rate environment. And there's also a ton of new syndicators out there that had a W-2 job and within six months have taken on $20 million of investor capital. And it kind of blows my mind in how somebody with less than a year's worth of experience is comfortable taking $20 million of other people's money. So you mentioned rates are going up. Cost of acquisition is going up. Now rents are going up as well. Material costs are going up. Where's that collision? What do you think is going to cause an imbalance? And one of the things is interest rates are rising. Cost of borrowing from private investors is going down. At some point, will it just be advantageous to borrow from the banks at 8%? What happens is when investors shut their cap off, is when we're going to have a problem. Investors, okay, enough's enough. It's too volatile, or I don't see the returns, or I don't buy your numbers, or the operator is not able to meet their performance. When things like that start to happen, the investors are going to shut that tap off. And when that tap shuts off, we're going to see where we could have certain segments implode. Now, some of the hotter markets, like Phoenix has been boom and bust. Is it going to crash this time? I, I don't know, but it's certainly not going to keep rising at the current rate that it's going. I mean, when the average C property is selling for 280000 a door, the rents just don't cover that. I mean, you have to get nearly 3000 a month in rent if you look at the old formulas, right, in a normal market. So we see that. But the other thing that people don't know that they got to be careful of is lenders require an exit cap different than what you would think. People are dropping their exit cap to make their numbers look good. But getting a C under four cap is not sustainable. When I first got into multifamily investing six, seven years ago, C properties were around eight, eight and a half percent cap. And now it's at a four or five. We see something that we underwrite at a six. And we're like, oh, it's an existing six. And we can push it up to an eight. Okay, now we're excited. We're back seven years ago. It needed to be at an eight, eight and a half current or even a 10. I mean, it was crazy what's happened. So that's why I don't think it's sustainable because the market is rising, I think, too fast. And that concerns me. But could I be wrong? Sure, I was wrong before. I mentioned I missed, I thought Phoenix was peaking and it's doubled since then. So 
will it continue to go? But there's so many other fundamentals and metrics that you look at, which the rent is one thing. Now, how far can you push that? And you've outpriced the market. Yeah, a lot of us were wrong. We thought the market had peaked several times over the last seven years. How are you preparing for what you're expecting to come? What we do is when we underwrite, we push our rents to market average. We're in the C market. I like the C market. And I want to deviate a little bit. Just why I like class C is the lower middle class and the upper lower class residents or that demographic is the fastest growing demographic and the most underserved demographic in the United States today. Because when you have things like Roosevelt Row and Phoenix that came in and built beautiful buildings, it's a great business model. I like what they did there. But the people that had to move out of those buildings that were demoed, that were completely removed, had no place to go. So that demographic, they're going to need a place to live. So C-class properties is where we exist. So when we go into a market, we don't raise our rents higher than the competition. We use the competition as a benchmark, like the one we have in Fort Worth. The rents are around seven, seven fifty, and for the smaller units, we should be at nine fifty. And we know that because we drove the comps, which are in worse condition than our property, but yet they're getting higher rents. We push to that, and then the pro forma on top of that is once we do these value adds, we can push these higher numbers. But we don't underwrite on that. We underwrite on existing rents. Where can they be today? Not on adding a ten percent increase for each year for the next three years. So that's one way that we protect make sure that when we underwrite, we can stress test it at current market rents for similar properties. Bruce, back to timing. You mentioned buy and hold. You don't understand really why 18 to 24 months is the normal syndication cycle. What do you tell your investors in terms of how long you're going to hold the property? Well, let me give you a secret. You want to completely shrink your investor base? Tell them it's a 10 year hold. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you completely shrink. But we've attracted other investors now that say, one guy that I talked to that came in on our, our most recent deal, he said, Bruce, I made 22% of my last investment. I was super excited. I did really well. I got the money in the bank and now I'm deflated. I said, why? He said, because I don't know where else to put it. There's too many options. He said, I just got into this 14 months ago or 13 months ago, just over a year. And he said, now I got to find a place. And he said, that was two months ago. He says, I'm making no money on that. I'm busy at work. I don't have time to go out and chase another opportunity. I just want to put something and get double digit return for 10 years. Where can I put it? And so he put a part of his into ours. So just a small investment, but yet he wants to give that a test run to see how that works. It's not an easy conversation. Uh, I mean, I'm in the minority when it comes to that, but I thought, you know what, if we can attract those people, like there's some people that are accredited investors that are in the military. And they've been through 22 years in the military or 25 years, they've been able to do small investments and in rental homes. And now they said, you know what, I want to get passively involved. And they like the, the longer term hold. That's what they did with the rental houses. So they've become accredited, very savvy structure that they have in, in creating their, their wealth. So then they said, hey, I don't want to sit here and move money all the time. They're busy in the military. They're busy in their job. Another one's a surgeon. He says, I don't have time to sit here and manage every year, find a new opportunity. He said, I want to put it somewhere. And then as that grows, keep adding to that. So it is a difficult conversation. Like I said, we shrunk our investor base very fast when we shifted from a 18 to 36 month hold to a seven to 10 year hold. It was crickets for a little while. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but 
you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Bruce, is there a way for investors to get out early or do you get asked that, hey, what happens if I have a life event in five, six, seven years? Can I get my money out? It's a great question. It's one that we tell people that don't put the money into our investment that you expect to get out in case of an emergency life event. And the reason is we're, we're focusing on a little higher net worth individuals. They might have a net worth of five to 10 million and they've given us 200,000. So it's not like it's their nest egg. And I have a rule, we call it the 2020 rule in our investments. No investor can be more than 20% of a deal of the equity. And they can invest no more than 20% of the liquidity. So if they have a million dollars in liquidity, they can put no more than 200,000. Now that's on an honor system. But the reason I have that is we had an investment that went longer than anticipated and an investor wanted his money out. And then one day he sat down with me and said, Bruce, we have all of our money with you. I didn't sleep for a few days. It was like, why would he put all of his money with me? That was ridiculous. So then we had to, it was what, three, 400,000. So I, I had to work on getting it back to him. And I said, never again, never again will I have somebody give me all their money. Now two of us aren't sleeping. How is that healthy? I love that contrarian approach. And I love how you talk yourself out of people's investment dollars, but you're doing it for the right reasons. It's not an easy discussion internally because when they say, hey, I've got 300,000 I want to put in your deal. Boy, that's easy, 300,000. Then I find out that their net worth is 300 and they're not accredited. I'm like, probably not a great idea on this deal to do that. Let's do 50 and see how it goes. It's not an easy discussion, Akash. It's really tempting to take it. Yeah, but it's a discussion I think more people should have, right? It's almost like people are looking for floodgates to open. Yes, I'll take all of your money. Keep it coming. Matter of fact, if you have friends and family, I'll take their money as well. But really getting to know your investors, their threshold for returns and risk, I think is very important. And I applaud you for doing that. Thank you. It was due to headache and heartache on person situation that we found out. So when people say they have to get out because of a, a personal emergency, it's probably not a great investor. I've even told people that maybe you're not for this deal. But in some of our documents, we've had what's called a Dutch auction. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you can sell your ears for face value or for a percentage and you just keep working it down until an investor says, yeah, I'll take that one for X. 
So there are ways to get out, but we make it very difficult that we want them to bet on the, on the horse and that's the operator and the sponsor and to really trust that we're going to run this as a good investment for them. It's a similar thing if they had their money in a 401k or an IRA and the penalties are so steep. Why are they steep? Because they don't want you to take your money out until you're 59 and a half. There's a reason why those are steep penalties. So we have a similar mindset that this is money that it's out of sight, out of mind. That's what we're hoping to attract in the future as well. Bruce, one thing that rarely gets talked about are tax consequences because everybody says, I'm not a tax attorney, no tax advice given. But with your model, you're saving people from paying taxes when they exit that syndication and the operator does not have another 1031 deal for them to put the money into. Does that conversation come up a lot with your investors? It hasn't come up too much. They've enjoyed the great returns and they have not. Although actually I take that back. It did come up one. We had a property that we were going to hold 10 years and we had performed it in long-term to be worth five years. We said, oh, I'll be worth about 7.3. Somebody said, hey, we want to make an offer on your property. And I said, 7.5 and we'll let it go. Well, they offered it. So let's show the market in Tucson. But then also we had a couple of investors that wanted to get out. We were in the transition from going from buy, fix and sell to buy and hold. And we had both investors in this deal. It became problematic as a conversation because we realized we had created a little bit of a problem by having investors that we were in and out in three years. And then we said, hey, we want to hold this one long-term. And we had people that said, well, we want to get out. Well, we want to get in. So we're trying to figure out the best way to get those investors out and get them out short-term. But that one individual that had a pretty good tax bill coming was not happy and he did not reinvest in the next deal. But that was a communication issue on my part to have investors come in for a short-term and then change to the long-term and then sell it short-term. It's it just... It, it was difficult. Yeah. You screwed up by giving somebody really high returns and then they had to pay taxes on it. Yeah. <laughs> but a bummer, huh? <laughs> but again, I applaud you for really deep diving into the expectations of your investors. A question I got to ask, you had wholesaled over 2000 single family houses. Have you used any of those wholesaling skills to acquire multifamily? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's, it's pretty fun. We bought a property in Tucson where my son had went and talked to the owner and visited with him about the property. No, I like the property. It's cash flow. It's a good property. I'm not, I'm not going to sell it. So he asked him, well, what don't you like about it? He said, well, the only problem is it's a little bit of a drive from Southern Arizona up to Tucson. It's 90 minutes each way. So if I have an issue, it takes some time. And he kept in touch over months and asked, hey, how's that drive going? One day he caught him at a time where he had to go back and deal with an emergency. So, you know, I think I should just sell. This is taking up too much of my time. So we bought direct with the, that owner. And it reminded me back to the little yellow notes. When you've seen a property that was distressed, you talk to the owner and you ask them, what are your pain points? And they say, well, that, oh, I don't have any. And the same thing happened on a house where the guy said, oh, this house is great. He's the only problem is my knees are getting sore. And it's a two-story house going up and down the stairs has been difficult. Well, talk to him over the course of months and eventually the, the person sold. So we learned that in wholesale and we buy that same to owners. Find out what are their pain points. What don't they like about a property and just continue to visit with them. So when you're in their sales cycle, they're going to call you first. And that was taught in wholesale. In fact, I used to send people postcards and they say, you need to stop sending me these postcards. I said, I'm going to mail them until I buy or you die. <laughs> and so, and, and not, I mean, we would really honor that they didn't want us to bug them anymore. Of course, we'd be respectful and not bug them, but you got to be careful if you're talking to an elder. You don't want to, somebody's really old and feeble. You don't want to do that. But that was our mindset. We still use that today. We'll continue to knock on the door of owners. Now, though, the challenge is you probably know is they're getting knocked on by every broker and, and any 
savvy buyer in the market. So it is difficult, but yeah, that's probably the biggest thing we've taken away. The other thing is how to estimate cost per unit. You know, in a house, we'd walk in and it was either five, 10, 15 or 20,000 to rehab the house to retail. We use the same thing just real quick. What is that? Okay. It's, it's a light turn. Okay. So it's 2000 per door or 5,000 or 8,000. We get real quick numbers, multiply times the number of units, get a pretty good idea of what the costs are going to be for the SNP test. So those skills are also very deep. And are you competing on every offer that you put out? Or are you still able to find off-market deals that you're taking down? We're finding some off-market deals. They've been on market as well and has to do with timing. But if it's going to full market call for offers, we have lost those 100% of the time. We have never won a call for offers on a property. In fact, the most recent one when we bought it, we just said, what will it take to avoid the call for offers? And they said, hey, if you get us to X amount, we'll sign the deal. So we said, okay, we're done. Because if it went to market, it would have went somewhat higher. But that was our threshold. Our threshold is 13.5. They came in at 13.7. We said, okay, we can make that work. It's only 200 grand. Yeah, good for you. Deal. Bruce, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Persistence, the compound effect. Do a little bit every day and stay on the details. It's very important to be structured. It's difficult for me to be structured because I've got the mindset of always wandering all over the place. But having a structure to your day is really, really important. And then a little bit every day on your tasks. Bruce, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Oh, bring it. (laughs) (laughs) Bruce, what is the best ever book you recently read? Oh, it has to be Blind Ambition by Chad E. Foster. I met him skiing in Aspen. He's a blind skier and he skis double black diamonds. So I met him. He said he wrote a book. And that's not the lightning round, the long answer, so I'm sorry, but Blind Ambition, no, I, phenomenal. What was, your, what was your big takeaway from that book? Here's the guy that felt sorry for himself for a brief moment and then said, you know what? This is my new life. This is the new me. What can I do with the new me? And we have that advantage every single day to say, this is a new me. This is my new me. What happened yesterday can't be undone. I can go forward from today. So that was by far the biggest eye-opener thing, and, and pun not intended, eye-opener to read about a guy that's blind that does amazing thing. So Blind Ambition by Chad E. Foster, phenomenal. Bruce, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I like individuals that are in need, and I get this from my wife. Somebody needs help. She's the first one to make a meal, first one to bring them goodies, first one to make sure. So I just ride on her coattails. Where are we going to serve next? And we bake cupcakes thousands a year, and if people need something, we'll do something small like that. Or something even larger where donation to an event or situation. But giving back on the personal level is most important to us and people in need. Bruce, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? The best way to reach me is go to bakerson.com, B-A-K-E-R-S-O-N, bakerson.com, because I'm an SOB, a son of a baker. (laughs) Bruce, thank you so much for your time today, giving us your journey, 2,000 wholesale houses, your outlook on what's going to happen with multifamily, some of the pitfalls, your contrarian approach, but most importantly, how you value what your investors are looking for. So thank you for your time today. Hey, Ash, thank you so much for having me on. It's truly been a joy. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.